0: Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome everybody to another amazing day here on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooperwriter. If you want to reach out to the show, you can always email info at theandrewshow.com. Missed an episode? Need to catch up? Well, you can visit theandrewshow.com. That's theandrewshow.com, and go ahead and tune in and listen at your leisure. Of course, it's always available at 9 a.m. on WZXI, Monday through Friday, but if you miss it there, you can check it out on all major podcasting platforms. Shows are released at 1 p.m. daily, so if you want to catch it early, you got to listen to it on WZXI. Well, a new school choice bill has been filed by Suzanne Miles, the bill that will most likely end up passing. It's receiving priority listing as House Bill 2. Anytime that you, you know a bill's important, to the legislature when it receives a designation 1 through 10. That means it typically is a priority bill, something to look out for. And Suzanne Miles, who is also the Republican caucus chair, so she's in leadership in the House, uh, has filed this bill that tells you it'll be the one that passes despite Josh Calloway's bill. But we'll dig into those bills and the differences between hers and Josh Calloway's here in a little bit, probably after this segment, into the second segment. Today's episode, we're going to really be focusing on a lot of bills, but with this school choice bill being filed, we have Andy Bashir running off to Twitter to complain about it to his, uh, you know, his liberal followers in the state to complain about something that enjoys a whole lot of support by widespread citizens, and that is school choice. But what's funny is while he is posting, for an example. Just two days ago, he made a post that said public money is for public schools. It's that simple. Now, long-term, long-time listeners of the show will know that I've deconstructed that argument as preposterous and stupid. No other place do we say public money is for public companies. But more importantly, Andy Bashir himself doesn't even actually believe what he's stating. Why? Well, if you will remember and scroll his Twitter or listen to a single public comment he makes now every single day, you'll hear him talking about the need for universal pre-K, universal preschool, saying that that is the the thing we need to fix all of our school problems here in Kentucky. But yet, when he describes what his plan is, he is describing a school choice model. He is allowing citizens to pick what private preschool they want to go to, and it will be paid for by the state. That is his plan. Not just in a nutshell, but that is his plan. And so he pitches this as a end-all, be-all fix, which it is, and I'll go into that here. But at the same time, while he's actively lobbying the legislature, like on a daily basis, to pass a school choice measures for preschool. He's over here attacking school choice measures for K-12 through education. Something doesn't seem right. Something doesn't smell right. And that is because it has nothing to do with an actual belief that public dollars belong in public schools or whatever bull hickey he can come up with. No, that's not it at all. It has to do simply with the fact that the public school administrators specifically, not even the teachers, are the ones that are paying Bashir's bills. They're the ones who are giving highly to his campaigns. They're the ones who are uh, helping his other liberal members get elected. And they're the ones he's hoping to gain support from in order to springboard his would-be presidential campaign that I'm sure is coming up in 2028. That That's who he's pushing for. And so with that in mind, uh, of course, he's going to say, look, we can't cut down on public education, public schools, and move them over to private schools because there's one thing private schools don't have that public schools do have. And that is a giant body of administrators, despite the cost of schools, even adjusted for inflation skyrocketing, as friend of the show, Dr. John Guerin, Professor Emeritatus of Economics at University of Kentucky, has shown with his recent study Despite that, uh, they they have spent more and more and gotten pretty much the same results as they have for the last several decades because – It has nothing to do with spending when you're going to spend it on administrative bloat. That's what private schools do better. They cut administrative bloat, but it's those administrators that run the the liberal side of teaching here in Kentucky. Think I'm wrong. Remember that the AFT 120, the teachers union here in Kentucky, is headed up by not people who've been in the classroom, but is actually headed up. Their main mouthpiece is Nima Brewer, who was an an administrator for Fayette County Public Schools, who said on her tuck assault day tweeting. uh, That's all she did and got paid over 80 grand a year to do it before she started working for the unions. But of course, you know, she represents the teachers, right? Now, even even if let's say that Bashir takes away his his, uh, hypocrisy when it comes to school choice, wanting school choice for universal pre-K, but being against it for your kids in K through 12 schools, take away that hypocrisy. You still run into a problem that this Will not, his push for this does not solve our schooling problems. And you need but only look at our current program because actually here in the state of Kentucky, about 30 percent of Kentucky kids go to a preschool program or Head Start program that is funded through the taxpayers, funded through the state nor to qualify for that. There are certain income requirements that require you to be low income. Uh, I believe it's 160% of poverty level. If you are at or below that, uh, your three or four year olds are able to go to a state sponsored program, state paid for program. And then if you're above that income level, you can still go to some state sponsored programs and receive some subsidies for doing so. Uh, That's up to you. They may pay part of it, some of it, so on and so forth. But it's free uh, to anybody making less than 160% of poverty level. And and as long as your district offers it, and that means about 30% of Kentucky three and four-year-olds are going to these programs now. But despite that, and remember what I said, it was the low-income kids, the at-risk youths as they call it so often, despite that, when we look at school performance in K through 12 schools, when we look at fourth graders and uh, eighth graders, when we're looking at school performance, we see that kids from those same groups are among some of the worst performing that we have. And this isn't by accident, but they're the worst performing we have. They're already getting that universal pre-K program. This is a boondoggle that won't solve the problem because we have versions of it offered now, and it's not solving the problem. Actually, the kids that the pre-K programs are, are dialed in for right now are the same kids that are doing the worst in our K-12 through schools. It proves that this doesn't work. But despite that, Bashir needs to push this because he has got to answer a question of why is it that kids are doing worse and worse in schools? And he can't say it's because we're spending too much on administrators. We're spending too much pushing leftist ideology. We're spending too much worrying about their belonging and mental health at a a place where they should be learning about math and reading and writing. We're spending too much on that. He can't say that. That goes against his leftist beliefs. So instead, he's got to say this is this golden bullet silver bullet solution to our problems even though as it's being used right now it proves it doesn't work another waste of your dollars another waste and I, and because and it doesn't work because he's afraid to say what the real problem is. But I'll say it for you, Bashir. I'll help you out. The real problem is we've got kids that don't kids. We got parents that don't give two cruds about their kids' education system, and they don't care about it because they're so used to being taken care of by others. They don't see how this reciprocal cycle, this quote-unquote generational poverty, is being caused by the government saying, "Don't worry about it. We'll take care of you." And when you raise a bunch of parents on the government teat teaching them that government is here to take care of you. Guess what? They think government's there to take care of their kids as well, and it's not their responsibility. And so their kids continue to fail. And you're only reinforcing that by saying government should also be paying for your pre-K because, of course, that means that's why your kid's not performing. Well, coming up after this, we'll dig into the school choice bills as, lo- as well as a lot of other bills that are being voted on uh, either today or tomorrow. We'll be digging into those after this short break. You're listening to The Andrew cooper Show. And you are back with The Andrew cooper Show, your source for Kentucky Politics now is stated before the break. We've had now our second school choice amendment f- bill filed here in Kentucky. This is most likely the one that will be called forward because it is sponsored by a member of leadership. They didn't want to bring forward Josh Galloway's school choice bill, despite the fact it has 30 sponsors. Keep in mind, in order for a constitutional amendment to pass the legislature in Kentucky, it has to have 60% of the House and 60% of the Senate vote for it. Josh Galloway's already has half the amount of votes it would need on the floor as sponsors to the bill. And despite all this work that's already been done to Garner support, despite all this, the leadership in the House decided they needed to go ahead and file their own version. That isn't really that substantively different. It does have a f- one minor or major, I guess, depending on how you look at it, difference to it that, that still could be overcome with court action, but regardless, it It is essentially the same thing, but yet they insisted on filing this, they say because it has cleaner language, which it does, but once again, it does kind of open up uh, some space for criticism from the left. It doesn't take away one of their attack points as well as it, it also leaves the door open for some geographical discrimination that could be overcome in the courts, assuming this passes, and then they try to do some geographical discrimination based upon educational opportunities. But the main reason why they did it was simply because they don't like Josh Calloway. Now, uh, in prior shows, I think a few weeks ago, I went into why they don't like Josh Calloway, pointing out his floor speech and impassionate, uh, you know, impassionate speech he made pushing for protection of Kentucky children against crazy woke ideologies in the schools. But while standing up there, he was going against leadership. And even in his speech, he acknowledged he was by standing up for our kids and they can't continue to have that. That's why he was taking off all of his committee assignments over the a break. He was put back on them going into this session. But in the off session, he wasn't able to take part in any committee hearings because they had removed him off those committees, as well as him and a few others, in order to make sure people understood that they are the ones in control. Well, now we see this bill put forward. So let's take a look at Miles's bill. So Miles's bill is pretty simple, straightforward. It says, Notwithstanding the provisions of Section 171, 183, 184, 186, and 189, the General Assembly may provide financial support for the education of students outside the system of common schools. The General Assembly may exercise this authority by law in particular places as it deems proper. While Josh Calloway's read, uh, to ensure that parents have options to guide the educational path of their children, the General Assembly shall, by appropriate legislation, provide and oversee and effective system of common schools throughout the state and provide for a portion of the educational costs for parents of students outside of the common school system, uh, Sections 184 to 189 of this Constitution shall not prevent nor require any further referendum or any provision for the educational costs of students outside of the system of common schools for parents and limited financial means as determined by law, so long as no such funds are taken directly from the common school fund. So what Callaway's bill, though it's a little trick, I don't want to call it trickery of words, that's not quite it, but what Callaway's bill provides a defense against is this claim that school choice will take away from our public schools. But in Callaway's bill, it says, look, you can't touch the SEEK formula, the formula that funds our common schools. You can't take money out of that to pay for educational choice. Now, that's a little bit of a language action, only simply because – Basically, if you have less kids enrolled in public schools, the requirement and the amount of money needed into the SEEK formula would go down. So while it it doesn't say that the funding levels are locked or anything like that, uh, what it does say is that you can't um, take money out of the SEEK formula specifically for this. But if kids are leaving public schools for school choice schools – uh, well, then the funding into the SEEK formula won't necessarily have to be as high. So it's kind of a, you know, it would almost be a cause and effect. So kids come out, they join more private schools, and and then the public schools have less students and then funding uh, would, quote unquote, go down to the public schools, but only per student basis. I mean, remember, people are... As people are crying about saying, hey, look, our public schools aren't receiving, they're, they're going to lose funding under this plan. Well, you're also going to be losing students. Now, I understand that you, quote unquote, have facilities and and uh, those facilities have been built around a certain number of students. And that is something that needs to be looked at. I'm not saying it's not, but that isn't a good reason to deny school choice across the board. Now, the other thing. That so, so Callaway's amendment does provide better optics uh, when you're out there campaigning for the amendment because it says, look, the seek formula isn't going to be messed with. And that is good because, uh, you know, the attack will be, oh, your kids won't, if you pass this and your kids don't go to the one of these schools, well, they'll have less money in their public schools. And you can say, no, 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 this actually uh, says that isn't allowed. But under Miles' amendment, you don't have those optics. Additionally, under Miles's amendment, it opens the door and allows geographical discrimination, basically saying if you live in Lexington or Louisville or maybe northern Kentucky, you can have school choice, but people in other counties can't. I don't think that's very fair, and I think that does come into some conflicts with some other provisions uh, of our Constitution about people being, quote-unquote, treated fairly. And as such, as you may remember, uh, a part of our Uh, recent bills passed around school choice that have been ruled unconstitutional. One said, hey, we got to set up a charter school in this area or to allow the setup of charter schools in areas that only have above a certain population. I believe that was 60,000. And that was struck down as unconstitutional. Now, this is changing the constitution. And so obviously that argument you could see fall away. It just depends on how a judge looks at the conflicting uh, provisions and decides how they want to look at it. But the point is my my overall point is this, is that opening up the door for geographical discrimination of students is the best way to ensure that, I, you know, school choice provisions as the, the state grows becomes harder and harder for people to accomplish in other areas, in more rural areas that grow. So take, I don't know, let's take Somerset. Where do you draw that line? When does it become, okay, this area has now gathered enough population to be allowed for their kids and parents to have the right to control the education of their students. I mean, either you believe in school choice and you think that parents should have the right to control the education of their kids, or you don't, those are your two options. But Miles is proposing an amendment uh, maybe to split the baby, to get more rule support. I, I, I don't know what the thought process is here. But substantively, they are basically the same. So there's the two choice amendments that have been offered up for our school choice. Um we also have a few other bills that have been filed to be either passed today and the House has orders of the day posted for today and then the Senate has some posted for today and tomorrow going over though to the House first we have House Bill 87 that's been proposed for passage today now any times you're seeing these once again on the orders of the day that tells you this is a bill that is more likely than not to pass uh generally speaking especially when you have 80-81 members of our state house as Republican, the decision of whether or not a to call a bill forward is made in the caucus meetings. Basically, they put a bill forward, they have all the real debates and discussion outside of the eye of media and citizens, and then if they decide that a bill will pass has enough support there in caucus, then they'll throw it on the orders of the day to pull it forward to be voted on. That's That's kind of how those decisions are made. So this means that they are pretty sure that these bills will pass. They generally don't call forward bills that they think won't pass. If they do, uh, they're not going to pass by a very slim margin. Um, And so that's why we pay attention to these bills because they, uh, passing one chamber means they're halfway to becoming law. So House Bill 87 would permit the child, grandchild, or sibling of a deceased birth parent or deceased adopted child to be given the right to inspect adoption papers and records. So priorly, Uh, It was only the adoptee or uh, the adopted parent, once the child uh, becomes an adult, that it was allowed to petition the courts in order to take a look at the adoption records. But under this provision, it would allow family members of adopt children or children that have been adopted out, if the um, birth parent is deceased, well, then family members of the birth parent could look for that adult uh, adoptee's records. Or if the adoptee is deceased, family members of the adoptee could put in the request to view those adoption records. House Bill one fifty Five says a spouse that is convicted of a felony against the other uh, can be considered in proceedings. So right now, our courts have some rules and about what they can consider in proceedings and marital proceedings to uh, affect how much they award each people, such as property that they came into marriage with, so on and so forth, when a marriage is being disillusioned, disillusioned, dissolved. (laughs) Um, And so with this, it allows the the, uh, judge to take into account if the person that they're getting a divorce from has committed a, has been convicted of a felony against the Uh, uh, person that they're divorcing in consideration of marital property. But it also uh, says that if they've been convicted of a felony against their spouse, uh, they have no right to or interest in uh, the retirement benefits of the uh, other, of the uh, person they're getting a divorce from, and also has no interest or rights to the insurance. But, you know, there's other parts of our divorce law that I think if we're going to stand on conservative values, values that include uh, saying that marriage and the family is incredibly important, going back to my first segment where i talked about these parents that are, are just shirk their responsibilities of parents responsibilities of being a family there's other parts of this law we need to look at i'm going to be going into that after this short break you're listening to the andrew cooperator show your source for kentucky politics want to reach out to the show feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. once again that is info at the we'll see you back here very shortly And you are back with the Andrew Cooper show your source for Kentucky politics for the break. I was talking about House Bill uh, 155, which takes a look at changing some of the rules around divorce, allowing individuals who uh, if they committed were convicted of committing a felony against their spouse for that to be considered in divorce proceedings. But there's something else in the bill that should be changed if you value family. You see, our government has systematically devalued marriage and through doing so has devalued family, despite the fact that we see that, well, single parent households and uh, households where the mother and father aren't equally involved or not equally per se, but both involved in parenting result in many of the issues we see in our society when you take a look at our prison population, failing students, people who do bad in schools, criminals, I mean drug users, you list it, you name it, the vast majority of them, large percentages of them, are coming from single parent households. But despite that fact, our government does little to disincentivize the idea of having a single parent household. And one of the things the state of Kentucky does is it refuses uses, doesn't want to hear about, will not take into account if somebody is cheating on the other. Divorce proceedings were a no-fault divorce state, meaning that if a anybody, one person in the marriage says, I've decided this is no longer reconcilable, I don't want to be married anymore, they can go ahead and get a divorce and... worse than that even not only can they get a divorce but through the divorce proceedings the other person can't say look i wanted to stay married uh this person cheated on me though and now they're leaving me or uh, the other way around i'm leaving them because they cheated on me they went against their vow uh before marriage before a uh, god and of course uh, a person representing the state uh, promising because they're ordained remember they're their ordained pastors ordained priests people who are marriage, uh, uh you know, <laughs> marriage uh, overseers. What's, what's that word again? Marriage, uh whatever. Anyways, people who are uh, licensed by the state to oversee a marriage, uh, despite that promise that they made to be faithful, then, well, that just isn't good enough reason to be considered in marriage proceedings. And, and I think And while you may have your opinions on this, I think it's objectively a bad thing that our society is getting married at less and less rates. I think it's objectively a bad thing that people are having less and less children. I think that's bad. I I think the family is the crucial building block of a functioning society. It provides purpose and reason for the future outside of religion. It gives reasons to live for more than just yourself. It provides stability for children and obviously stability within a culture in a society. And when our government has come in and said, look, the fact that somebody has decided not to remain faithful, monogamous in a marriage, which they priorly have agreed to, well, we can't consider that when looking at divorce proceedings. I think that is one of the the things that has really destroyed our society. It should, of course, be considered in divorce proceedings. I think it should. Maybe you disagree, but I would ask you, What's it mean to be married then? If if the fact that your husband or wife cheated on you is not something that you think should be considered when it comes to dissolving a marriage when somebody's broken their vow to you, what do you think marriage is about in the first place? What was the state's interest in marriage to begin with? I mean, originally, the state's main interest in marriage was procreation, obviously, with the legalization of gay marriage, quote unquote, legalization uh, that went out the window. The state really has no longer any interest in marriage to begin with. Um but originally it was based around procreation it was based around the family that was their interest in marriage to begin with because it was a crucial and important building block of society that these by nature uh procreative environment where they can you know have kids they they can procreate uh by nature that's what they do in marriages is what marriages are for Uh, And saying, hey, you can step out and not face any consequences for that. I think that really provides a societal belief that cheating is okay. And not just that cheating is okay, but marriage doesn't mean anything. You wonder why our kids, remember at the beginning of this, we were talking about why kids are failing in schools. And I mentioned it's because parents, there are parents out there that don't care. They don't care about their kids. They don't care about family. And the government is only reinforcing this. And the government continues to do this through welfare systems that reward people for not getting married and having kids, that take care of people, tr- teaching children and parents and creating that generational poverty of people that decide they need to rely on the government to take care of them. And furthermore, by sit- sitting here and creating a culture and an environment where cheating on your spouse, well, that just isn't really a bad thing. That should absolutely be a bad thing. I mean, you're literally destroying kids' lives. Not only that, you're disincentivizing marriage in the first place. Why would a man or woman get married to somebody? And they know, not why, but you know, it plays in people's mind. It played in my mind for a long time until I met the kind of woman, uh, my wife, who, when I looked at what I had achieved to that point in life, and I said, wow, I would not be nearly the man I am without. Uh, uh, My wife, Kara, therefore, uh, not I'm not worried about her, quote unquote, taking half my stuff because we wouldn't have this together in the first place if it wasn't for her love and support. But prior to that, I thought the same way as many men do. Why would I ever get married opening up the door for some unfaithful woman to cheat on me while I value the concept of marriage? I value that sanctity, but I open up the door for some unfaithful woman to cheat on me, then take half my stuff while I remain faithful. That didn't seem very fair, and it's not, which is part of the reason why I wasn't getting married. But this encourages, of course, many men are thinking this way. And if you think I'm wrong, look at the marriage statistics. Just take a look at them. And you'll see that, yeah, this is exactly playing out exactly as I'm describing. People are not getting married. And they're getting married at less and less rates. And this is bad because they're still having kids. (laughs) They're still having children. There's just more and more single parent households which are producing children who underperform in society, both in school and as individuals by a statistic. I'm not saying as a whole individuals, right? But statistically speaking, having parents that aren't together is one of the biggest factors in success of a child. And yet here we are as a state encouraging it. So there you go. There's my rant on. Uh, marriage. <laughs> I know some of you could disagree. Go ahead and email me at info at the If you disagree, but I think you're going to be hard pressed to say, why is it? If you believe you just simply don't believe in marriage at all. If you think somehow, some way that people should be allowed to cheat and then not, and then be able to get a divorce and not somehow that be considered in divorce proceedings to at least create a carrot and stick type incentive situation for people not to cheat, which you shouldn't need that. You should be a good person and not cheat on your spouse, but wh- whatever, whatever. I mean, you know, in this modern day and age, it's all about gratification anyways. That's, that's what we've learned to deal with. And look at that, our nation's falling apart at the seams because we don't value anything anymore. You can tell I feel very strongly about this. But anyways. House Bill 341 uh, is an interesting bill to be voted on. It adds a constitutional amendment to the ballot for 2024 to be voted on that adds a line to the Kentucky state constitution saying that people who are not citizens of the United States, citizens of Kentucky, cannot vote. Now, obviously, this is a very good point. It should be already amongst law that illegal immigrants or immigrants who don't aren't citizens of the United States shouldn't be allowed to vote But this is taking A stand and the reasoning behind This one is you're taking a stand against A federal government law that would Come in and say that oh These citizens have to be allowed To vote so if, if the federal government Passes a law saying that if, if Democrats or what have you one day Pass a law allowing immigrants And non-citizens to vote in elections Well therefore uh, you, you would now be opening up The door for lawsuit challenges from Kentucky, because they would say, Well, our state constitution says differently, and the constitution says we have the right to conduct our elections as we see fit, but there's something else of concern about the fact that this is coming up for a vote now. I'll be digging into that after this. A short break, you're listening to the Andrew Cooperator show, your source for Kentucky politics. If you want to reach out to the show, feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. Game. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperator Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Kubrater. Before the break, we were talking about uh, a bill to be voted on today, House Bill 341, a bill that would add the requirement that you be a U.S. citizen in order to vote in the state of Kentucky, well, at least, or a Kentucky citizen too, but a citizen, a legal citizen in order to vote. Now, uh, uh, this is kind of already stated that you have to be that within laws and elsewhere, but adding this into the Constitution uh, is really taking an stab at defending ourselves from a federal government law that could be passed that would allow immigrants non-us citizens to vote they could try to uh, put something like that in place and then go ahead and uh, try to force that down on all the states but of course states according to our constitution are the ones in charge of their elections so it would create quite the constitutional crisis in my opinion but you know I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but that's my opinion. But there is one thing about this that I think uh, bears a discussion. Okay, so uh, if we rewind to, I think, last week or two, uh, the, the Senate passed a bill to move the governor's elections or a bill that would create a constitutional amendment to move the governor's elections to the off from the off year to the presidential election years. Cause they say, well, more people show up. It's, you know, if it's just us Republicans talking here, it's more conservative show up on presidential election year. Kentucky for decades now has voted red in federal elections. So if we move it to the presidential federal election year, when most people show up to vote, uh, Uh, It will definitely go Republican every time. We won't have to worry about it, which is a great short-term thought process. But once again, in that show, I talked about the long-term ramifications of such a decision while at the same time poking holes in the logic of others. And, And my point is simply this. I understand you don't like the outcome of the last election if you're a Republican, but changing our laws into the, not just our laws, but changing the day we have the election from off year into the the main year because you can't manage to run a candidate that can actually turn people out in an off year election isn't a great thing to do. We should be incentivizing Republicans to choose people to run for office that are inspiring and can turn out the vote. But besides that, You are looking at right now, assuming this passes tomorrow, two constitutional amendments that have passed at least one House. Additionally, you will see a school choice amendment that will pass the House, most likely pass the Senate. Basically, everybody in leadership has said that a school choice amendment will be on the ballot for 2024. So right now... Potentially, just with what's past the House and what they say will pass, you're looking or past a chamber and what they say will pass. You're looking at three constitutional amendments, which is the best argument against moving our governor's elections to presidential election years. You start having bouts. They talked about voter fatigue as a reason not to turn people out. They talked about all the commercials and ads. You will have at least three, possibly four, we're looking at, possibly three Possibly four, because Matt Locke has a constitutional amendment that's got a little bit of legs to it, on our ballot for 2024. Three or four constitutional amendments are possible, very possible. On top of a presidential election, on top of congressional elections, on top of, in four years, you would see a Senate election. And now they want to throw, what, uh, the governor, technically lieutenant governor, the attorney general, The commissioner of agriculture, the treasurer, the auditor, and the secretary of state, seven other statewide offices onto that ballot on the same years that they love to shove a bunch of constitutional amendments down onto the ballot. That is not that. I'm sorry. You want to talk about long ballots? You want to talk about voter fatigue? This is a great way to cause otherwise good constitutional amendments to fail because people just start looking at the ballot and being like, what is going on here? Not to mention the ad space and the cost to to campaign for this. I mean, imagine this: you're you're competing for volunteers, so you'd have Senate races, presidential races, governor's races, uh, all the down ticket races, and now constitutional amendments. Uh, uh, decisions and referendums that are all competing for ad space, that are all competing for uh, uh, mailing, put in, think of your mailbox, TV ad space, radio ad space, uh, that are competing for volunteers that go out and knock doors. It's a great way to make sure that Kentucky elections get even more expensive than they are. We've already seen record amounts of spending in our state elections. Records amounts, and it's only going to grow more and more, as, especially as we shove more and more races into at the same time and as we overload citizens with elections they will make harder choices because the number one problem we have with our election process right now outside of uh, uh processes quote unquote is voters not being informed on the issues they show up they vote for names they know or whoever paid for the ads and they don't take time to inform themselves because they're too busy they got a lot going on And now you're going to add more races and more constitutional amendments and more everything onto their their same time to come out and vote because you don't want them to have to vote over uh, three years. You want them to only vote every two years and load everything into the fourth year because everybody turns out that year. So let's just shove all the races we can into that. it, It just this makes no sense. And it's not good for the future of Kentucky. That is one point to make. I support the amendment. Don't get me wrong. Support it. But we are shoving a lot onto this presidential election years, and it's going to lead to bad decisions. So there's a few bills over in the Senate being considered uh, for tomorrow. Nothing too, too consequential, but Tuesday we do have some important bills, as well as we had CAR, Crisis Aversion Rights Retention Act, that's a red flag gun law, filed into the Senate. We'll be digging into all of that tomorrow. But before we end today, I do have some news coming out of District 24. Now, District 24 was held by Brandon Reed. Brandon Reed has resigned from the district to go work uh, elsewhere within the government, leaving that position open. So a special election was called for in March. Uh, Special elections are, um, they don't have a primary, uh, a typical primary. What happens is, is a candidate gets chosen by the parties within the counties that they represent. I've gone into at length on some prior shows uh, about this process. I don't want to bore you all by digging into it and waste everybody's time explaining something you may already understand, but basically the parties, uh, the county parties within the district pick uh, who will represent them? So the Democrat Party counties, Democrat county parties meet, they choose their candidate, and then the Republican county parties meet. Now, I'd mention District 24 uh, because it has an interesting story to it, because you have the parties who supported basically the majority of the party members are supporting a guy named Asa Wagner uh, for the open seat primary. Because it's while at the same time it's got this special going on, it also has a primary and election in May, then November. And that primary is is against uh, a givens a guy named or not givens bivens uh, a soybean farmer prior member of some president of soybean growers association and um and he's kind of the choice of the establishment. The establishment toes, the politicos amongst the establishment seem to really like him. And then you have uh, Asa Wagner, who is definitely a member of more the conservative wing of the Republican party, the, the upstarts, the rabble rousers, the people that the establishment hates, which is exactly why he deserves your support. But he is not old enough to be able to compete in that special election right now. So the choice was you either could elect Bivens and And that would have basically have ended Asa Wagner's campaign right there. And the establishment knew it. They knew it. And they tried their hardest to get Bivens to be the choice. But instead... Courtney Gilbert, who's the sister of Senator Southworth and who actually ran for the seat two years ago against Brandon Reed in the primary and lost, uh, was the nominee for District 24. So she'll be representing them in the general. She will most likely win that general election, too, as well. That district is very conservative. Brandon Reed won the last General with a 75 to 25, 75% to 25% of the vote. So Courtney Gilbert will most likely win, but she will only be in that seat from March uh, until. Uh, What the end of December, basically January. So basically, the from March till the rest of that this year, she will fulfill that seat. So I don't know what uh, committee assignments they give her, if any, where she's leaving, but she will be able to vote in the House uh, from March until May um, when the uh, not May, sorry, from March until April when the session officially stops. So she'll basically get about a month of voting time, and then otherwise um, she'll kind of be out. But that is good because I do believe, if I'm not mistaken, she was at the signing for Asa Wagner. Uh, and so she most likely will have, if she hasn't already endorsed Asa Wagner. Now, this is of much consternation to the establishment. They're pretty upset about this. Uh, you can go on, uh, it was posted on YouTube, the official you know, hearing as far as it goes. Bivens was nominated, uh, but he failed in that voting. Honestly, if you're Bivens at this point, you might even think about withdrawing because clearly you can't even win a nomination against somebody. You can only hold the seat for a few months. You don't have the support of the people in the district. Uh, The the Republicans in the know don't support you. They're supporting Asa Wagner in this race. Uh, You should drop out. But that's all we have today on the Andrew Cooperator Show. Thank you all so, so much for joining me. We'll be back here tomorrow, 9 a.m. on the radio, 1 o'clock everywhere else. Have a great rest of your day.